Uh, for our reading this morning, could I please ask that you um, turn with me to the book of Tobit? You're killing my vibe here, Mick. <laughs> All right, well, everyone's blank except for uh, Mick over there. But, um, all right, no worries, we don't have to, but what about uh, Judith? Book of Judith, please, uh, just turn there, table of contents if you're not sure. Alrighty, uh, what about one Estras? Two Maccabees, how long do you want me to drag this on for? 13th chapter of Daniel, Susanna? 14th chapter of Daniel, uh, Bell the Dragon. Okay, um, Prayer of Manasseh. All right, well, that's cool. We all know the Gospels. Would you please now turn with me to the Gospel of James? Gospel of Judas? Almost an oxymoron. Uh, Mary Magdalene? Gospel of Eve? All right. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Perfection. All right, all right. The Gospel of Truth. This joke is wearing thin. So why don't you now turn with me to the, the infancy gospel of Thomas. Chapter 4, verse 1. Read along with me there. Next, he was going through the village. He, Jesus, was going through the village. And a child running bumped into his shoulder. Becoming bitter, the child Jesus said to him, You will not complete your journey. Immediately he fell down and died. Then some people who had seen what had happened said, Where has this child Jesus come from? So that every word he says is completed. And going to Joseph, the parents of the one who had killed to find fault with him, they said, because you have such a child, you are not allowed to live with us in the village or at least teach him to bless others and not curse. For our children are dead. This is not the word of the Lord and all of God's people refuse to say amen. Would you now pray with me a prayer of confession? Hey, Heavenly Father, we are once again just so thankful to be here in your presence among your people for a, an hour to just concentrate, to concentrate on things that are beyond us, to marvel at the divine truth that you have revealed, inspired, transmitted, preserved, translated, and canonized. Father, this morning we come before you uh, recognising we don't know everything. But I pray that we would have an attitude and a heart, a mind and a willingness because that is what this is all about, our will at the end of the day. To look at the truth of the matter, to hear the voice of you through the truth of the matter calling us to transform and conform to the image of your son Jesus by the power of his word, which is truth. That is why he came. That is why we get together here at church to refresh ourselves anew at least once a week here of what it is that you have done for us and Lord to extend that to each other horizontally. It's a hard world. It's a Babylon. This is an embassy. We are your people in a foreign land and we are learning stuff that a lot of people don't not only believe but don't even see value in it and I pray that that would not be us here today. Move amongst us and break any resistance we may have to whatever it is you want to say today. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, it is a privilege to be here again. It's a... Uh, Strange thing these past couple of weeks, you know, it's almost feels like it's been six months. Yeah, it's one thing to, to walk through the text of scripture, that is a burden, um, but it's safe because the Lord has laid the tracks, you just walk people through it. Uh, to try and build your tracks like we're doing here with a study that's so unique like bibliology and then walk through it is tough, uh, but it is a, a privilege and I, I'm so thankful for having the opportunity to cut my teeth here and and uh, I'm thankful for your patience because I know we're really giving you two sermons every week. Um, uh, we are going through Bibliology. If you haven't been 
uh, with us for a little while. Um, we've got some friends visiting, uh, got people coming late off night shifts, we've got post-op here all in the room, so uh, we're all here. Uh, we're coming off the back of uh, three weeks, this is our third week now of bibliology, uh, four-week study, next week will be our final one. This is really the last week of the content, next week is just going to be a regular sermon that we're going to go through to kind of wrap everything up. Um, so this is the last punch of, you know, lecture or download or data dumping um, for you all, which is good news. Um, I, I'm loving it. Has anyone, um, just raise your hand if you if if you feel like this is something you can take out and talk to your friends about? Have you, is this something that, that you're actively um, confident that, that this is information you can use? Yeah? Good. All right. Just raise your hand if you're just getting nothing at all. <laughs> I love it. I'm loving it at least. Uh, and, and the Lord is growing me through this. Um, I've entitled today's message, Sola Scriptura. Uh, that is Latin for scripture alone. It simply means, by definition, the Bible is the regular fide, the rule, the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. Let me say that again. Sola Scriptura means scripture alone. That means the Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. Now, understanding this doctrine is our goal for today. That's where we're going to end up. That's our target. But we have a bit of a road to walk before we get there. Uh, And that uh, road is called canonicity. Because Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, it is a restrictive doctrine scripture alone so if we're going to understand rightly what that actually means we need to know what scripture is what is the scripture that we are saying scripture alone about because none of those books that i listed off before probably not heard of them that infancy gospel of thomas uh, they're not in our bible and yet they claim to be Gospels, they claim to be inspired, uh, they claim to be written by holy men, but they're not in our Bibles. Why not? Why aren't they in your table of contents? In fact, you go to some churches here, Catholic churches, they've got more books in our Bible that we don't have. Why do they have books and we don't have books? What's going on here? This is the doctrine of, well, yeah, no, it is a doctrine, the doctrine of canonicity. In fact, there's stacks of other books mentioned in the Bible that we don't have in the Bible. And I don't expect you to read that list, by the way. But the point is, there's lots. Why don't we have them? If the Bible refers to some of those books, why don't we have them in our Bibles? Why do we only teach and preach here, week in and week out, the 39 books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi and the 27 books of the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation? Because you could believe everything we've said so far these couple of weeks. You could be tracking with divine revelation, divine inspiration, transmission, and and you're with us. But then you get to this week and you're like, but I don't know why this is it. How do you know we got it all? It's a very good question. So that is our first assignment today. Before we end up at our target of Sola Scriptura, to understand what the canon of Scripture is so we can understand why the canon is what it is. So let's get into it. First of all, the canon of Scripture. What do we mean when we say the canon of Scripture? Well, back in the day, a canon was a reed or a measuring stick, like uh, those old metre rulers that we used to have in, in high school, some of us at least, when, you know, chalkboards. Um, you probably got beaten with them if you're a bit older than I was. Uh, those old metre rules, they're kind of like that. It was a datum, it was a standard, it was a measuring rod. A standard of measurement. And around the 4th century AD, a Christian bloke named, named Athanasius, the church father, uh, he used this word canon to reference the Bible. 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. He said, this is the standard. This is the meter ruler. This is it. From where to go. He bound it. He restricted it. This is the measurement of God's revealed and inspired word. So, for our purposes here, canonicity means 
a definition, the extent of inspired writings and their recognition by the church. The key phrase here is recognition. Recognition. Circle that, underline it, type it in your phone, whatever you need to do. Canonicity refers to the recognition of the books in the Bible. This is critical because for whatever reason, there are so many conspiracy theories out there today on the internet, in books, in movies, about how the Bible was canonised, about how the Roman Emperor Constantine pulled all the manuscripts together and wrote Jesus into the Bible. I hope you, I hope you, you, could, you could see from last week, there was no time in the history of the Bible where any manuscripts were all on the table at one time. There was never a time in the history of the Bible where any one individual or group of individuals had collectively in their possession all of the word of God. It was everywhere around the world in different languages. To say or presume that you could bring them all back into the table, rewrite it, not let your ink work show and get it back out there, it would literally be a miracle. That's probably why you're arguing that way, not in the first place, but if you believe in miracles, you're one step there, so why stop? That is not what happened. And a lot of people say, you know, this is all at the Council of Nicaea, you know, the, the Emperor Constantine, that great emperor of the Rome, the great Roman emperor of the 4th century who, who um, legalised Christianity, brought them all around this table at this Council of Nicaea, and that is where they decided what was in the Bible, and they went through, you know, pages after pages. This is in, this is out, you know. Um, second Maccabees, uh, all in favour say aye. All in favour say no. The no's have it. Motion passed. Take the action. Move on. What about the, the Book of James? Two of you guys don't like it, 400 of you do. There's a bit of contention, we'll throw it in, the eyes have it. That's not what happened. They did not go through the books of the Bible and decide which would be in and which would be out. That is complete and utter nonsense. That is not what happened. Cults will tell you that's what's happened. Critics will tell you that's what's happened. Conspiracy theorists will tell you that's what's happened. But that's because they're playing kickball with the facts of history. You don't have to be a Christian to believe what I'm about to present today. There's plenty of brilliant, non-Christian, biblical scholars who don't buy into that pop scholarship. And there's no secret about this. There's no scandal about this. Just don't trust Dr. Google as you go there. I know this is crushing, particularly for us blokes. We're going to have to scratch off our bucket list, go on a Petra like Indiana Jones and looking for that Holy Grail. Because there's no mystery there is no secret code there is no mystique or hidden story in there for us to go explore there is no da vinci code conspiracy there's only da vinci code confusion i don't expect you to read everything up there on the screen um i just want you to see that um there's a lot of false information in the da vinci code that has good answers. That 2003 bestseller, you know, uh, I don't know if everyone's read it, you've probably watched the movie, Tom Hanks starred in it. It does not line up with history. But the fact that this book has caused such a stir, missionaries left the mission field over this book. Christians walked away from the faith over this book. The fact that this was such a hot hit and the fact that it was so popular and the entire thing was just false in so many regards, goes to show how widespread this confusion is. The problem with the whole men sitting around this table at the Council of Nicaea to organise and put the Bible together, the problem with that is that it is patently false. I don't know how else to say it. A square is not a circle. That didn't happen. The world is not flat and androids are better than iPhones. That did not happen. <laughs> the Council of Nicaea, let me say this in case you didn't get that, had nothing to do with the formation of the Bible. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the formation of the Bible. It was convened for the purposes of discussing the divinity of Jesus. 
not the canon of the Bible. And the Emperor Constantine had nothing to do with the formation of the canon of Scripture. Because the Old Testament canon was around for about 500 years before Constantine, and the New Testament canon wasn't finalised until about 30 years after his death. So unless we have unborn dead dudes putting this thing together, it didn't happen. Sure, the Da Vinci Code is just a novel that doesn't claim to be true. Just back off, you know, give the guy a rest. That's fine, I, I know that. But you walk a very fine line when you write a, a fiction book in a non-fiction context and change the truth about the names, the places, the dates, the people and everything in it. Don't let that show put it out there, make millions and confuse a lot of people. Authors have responsibilities. It's not about making a mockery of the Da Vinci Code, but it is at the same time as well. Because naming and shaming their error, Dan Brown's errors, it's thoroughly biblical. Paul does it, names them, calls them out, tells you where they live in the New Testament. For righteous intent. So often the Bible is mocked in the name of reason. But if these kind of conspiracy theories are what constitute as reason today, then brothers and sisters, you call me unreasonable all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. Last week we mentioned how uh, some very serious scholarship out there, some very like a good, misguided, but good scholarship out there, is wrong. And so is... TV, Hollywood has lied to you. Don't believe everything you see in the movies. Don't believe everything from your Who magazine pseudo-scholarship, the latest gossip column or somebody's Facebook feed meme about how Jesus never really died but got married and had babies and moved to India and trained the gurus. I had that conversation around a, a pub table once. What then is the truth of the matter? The truth is that no group of white-bearded men sat around a table and determined what would be in and what would be out of Scripture. The 66 books you have today were not determined by men. They were recognised as canon over hundreds of years. What that means is we have incorrect views and correct views. I think they're up on the screen. The church is not... The determiner of the canon, the church is the discoverer of the canon. The church is, the is not the mother of the canon, the church is the child of the canon. The church is not the magistrate of the canon, the church is the minister of the canon. The church is not the regulator of the canon, the church is the recognizer of the canon. The church is not the judge of the canon. The church is the witness of the canon. The church is not the master of the canon. The church is the servant of the canon. Make sense? And, I, and listen to this by J.I. Packer. I love this. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his word in creation. And similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring individual books that make it up. Packer nails it. He nails it. The reason why a correct view of canonicity is so important today is because the Bible is God-breathed. It is inspired. To say men determine the Bible is to say the Bible is man-breathed. They did not. All scripture is God-breathed. So, that's fine. The canon was recognised. It wasn't determined. Cool. How did they recognise it? Because isn't that just another way of saying they really determined it if they recognised it? You know what I mean? How did they recognise it? The question still stands. What was their criteria? Well, that's a good question. When you study the the manuscripts that we have, you know, that jigsaw puzzle analogy you had last week, when you actually go through all of that and you look at your internal and your external evidences, internal evidence has been what are actually contained in the manuscripts, the words, etc., things like that, names, dates, places, people. The external evidence being um, anything that they reference outside of themselves, whether or not that emperor really existed, for example, um, and how, how it maps to the external world. 
when you look at all of those things, what we find uh, in the 66 books that we have in our Bibles today, the 39 Old Testament, 27 New, is that they all met, unlike every other book, they all met certain criteria. And if we're really reductionistic, we could reduce it down to three. The first would be this, apostolic authority. Were the books authorised by either an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament apostle? Were they either written by or authorised by a man of God who was known amongst the community? For example, uh, we have Mark and Luke. They weren't apostles, but they worked with them. Mark was Peter's helper and Luke was an associate of Paul. This is why uh, we see books so often introduced by phrases like the Lord said or God spoke. That's why Hebrews begins with God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets he has in these last days spoken to us in his son. And when Jesus himself quotes uh, a book, it's a pretty good indication of its authority or its endorsement as, uh, as a book written by a man, of a prophet or an apostle. And again, that's not, to, that's not to use the Bible to prove the Bible. If Jesus in the Gospels was quoting, say, Deuteronomy when he's there in Matthew 4, you're just using the Bible to prove the Bible. No, what is the Bible? The Bible is 66 books. You're using one historical source to cross-reference with another historical source. If that's an issue, you've got an issue with history because that is exactly what historians do. They use one historian so- historical source and check it with another. That's how we do our history. Secondly, is conformity of the faith. Does the message consist of the same basic stuff of Christianity? Does it cohere? Is it consistent? Is it continuous with the Hebrew scriptures, for example? Is it progressive? If not, then it must be false, because Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Like the Apostle Paul said, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than we have preached, let him be accursed. It's heavy. Third is acceptance by the church. Were the books accepted by the people of God? And you see this, for example, with Daniel. He's reading in chapter 9, the books of Jeremiah. Clearly, as a man from Judah, they had taken the writings of Jeremiah and accepted them. So there you go. That's an example of acceptance by the church. And another way that you can think of this is whether or not, um, how the, sorry, how the Holy Spirit works in people. If it's accepted, and if we have the Spirit, and the Spirit testifies to the truth, then there is a functional role of the Holy Spirit in canonicity as well. I did not have to tell you that what I read out before was just totally false. As believers, you knew that what I was reading to you before from that infancy gospel of Thomas was garbage. Jesus the child slayer. You know, puts Dennis the menace to shame. We have the Spirit, a helper, who will guide us in all truth and he gives us discernment. This is why I love John. Uh, 1 John 2, I think. Think. 1 John 2, 26 to 27. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. John is saying you don't need to sit there, friends, right here at Calves. You do not need to sit there passively and just accept any old junk that comes down through the pipe of some preacher in the pulpit, me even. You have a spirit of discernment to know whether it is true or false. And that is why you come and you talk to us, because we aren't a dictatorship here. We make errors. I am not infallible in my revelation. That ship has sailed. That is why we have the canon of Scripture. We make mistakes. I've already made mistakes factually. You know, I got a 1,700 years on one of the slides wrong. It was meant to be 900 years last week. We make errors. And you can challenge us and call us out on that. You don't need to be a consumer, a passive, gullible consumer of any old stuff that people say. Pastors are an open book. 
So all of these books that we have now in the Bible, these 66 books, they stand alone as canon because they achieve these three things. Again, they don't measure up to this standard because if they were to measure up to this standard, who sets a standard? It's just men making the rules and again, they're just determining, they're not recognising. They actually are this standard. I was trying to think of an analogy and I forgot to bring it here, but imagine if you have a whole stack of papers on a table and you're going through and you lift one up and it has a dollar sign on it, okay? Ampersand, okay? Seven, okay? A, okay? Um, hash mark, okay? B, well, A and B, okay? Put those two to the side and you go through and there's a full stop, an exclamation mark, question mark. C, you're starting to put together information, A, B, C. The others are just kind of random. That is what these are. When you, when, you, when you go through all of those manuscripts, you start to see that there is a distinction about the ones we have, and it is namely those three things. They set the standard. They are the criteria. They don't measure up. They establish. This is canon. The measuring stick. The one-metre ruler. So 66 books, books from Genesis to Revelation are the canon. And the, the Catholic Bible that we have has more books. They have these books called the apocryphal books. They don't measure up to this standard. In fact, the Catholic Church rejected them. It was only until the Council of Trent in 1546, when they were reacting to the Protestant Reformation, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, that they went and actually threw them in there to kind of distinguish themselves from the Protestant movement. So the apocryphal books that are in the Catholic Church today don't meet this basic criteria. What about the Old Testament canon then, if you want to get specific? Very quickly, the Old Testament, compared to the New Testament, there was really not much controversy. We talked last week a lot about how the textual critics went through and they mined through the variants and all the rest uh, and how they transmitted the Bible. Um, and there was a lot of persecution there in the early 1st and 2nd and 3rd centuries until it was legalised by Constantine in the 4th century. But the Old Testament was very different. It was very controlled. It was very uh, ritualistically done. You had... Old Testament Jewish scribes writing a word, going to the basin, washing, coming back, writing a word, going to the basin and washing, coming back, writing a word. Every time they went to the basin, there'd be a guy who would cross-check, cross-check, cross-check. We are talking meticulous to a whole new level. The Old Testament canonite or the Old Testament manuscript evidence is very different to what we talked about last week with the New Testament. So there's not much, as much controversy with the Old Testament. But that said, there's almost universal consensus by around 250 BC. Remember the Malachi, the last book, was written around 425. But the, there was almost universal consensus by 250 BC as to what the canon of the Old Testament was. There's a timeline up there that you can see. If I just walk through these, around 250 we had the Qumranian writings. Um, they confirmed all books except for Esther. 250 to 100 BC, the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament text that Jesus and the Apostles quoted from in the Gospels. Uh, they, uh, that was completed around 250 to 100 BC. 132 BC, the intertestamental period, there's about 400 years gap between Malachi and Matthew. It's called the intertestamental period, Old Testament, inter-new. In that gap there, we had um, Jew, Jewish writers confirming it in uh, one of their books called the Sirach. And then we had AD 37 to 100. This is now after the time of Jesus. We had Josephus, the historian. You've probably heard of him. He confirmed all of the Old Testament books, AD 30 to 100. So we're talking Acts, that period. Uh, we had Jesus and the apostles um, confirming it by sections. Jesus being in the gospel era. And then after that, we had the early church fathers. Very different to old Dan Brown's story, isn't it? Now, I didn't mention the Dead Sea Scrolls last week. Uh, we're mainly focused on the New Testament. I've got to say, I've got to put this in. I'm sorry. Uh, I cannot not mention this because we have some cool stuff happening this year, this month, a week and a half ago. What were they? The Old Testament, sorry, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were a bunch of scrolls, thousands and thousands of scrolls or portions of manuscripts, um, including the entire Old Testament uh, except for Esther. They were found in uh, Qumran near the northwestern end of the Dead Sea, hence the Dead Sea scrolls in various caves. They were discovered in 11 caves uh, across a decade between 1946 and 1956. Just under two weeks ago, we found a 12th cave. Since we've been doing bibliology, 
that is cool. What does that mean? Well, they found a, a parchment that they've sent away now in a, in a jar to go get processed. This is Hebrew University under Dr. Gutfield. I don't know who he is, but I, know, I was just reading the article. Uh, you get online and have a read about it. Uh, I don't know what that parchment contains. The point is, we're finding stuff still. That's exciting. Uh, they are the greatest manuscript discovery in modern times. That is what um, one of the best uh, archaeologists, Albright, said um, in the 20th century. They dated from about 250 BC to AD 70. So why are they so exciting? Why are you pumped about this? Because until the, their discovery in the mid-20th century, we only had scrolls from 900 AD. That is over a 1,000 years from the first writing, the original, to our first copy. And in one discovery, we closed the gap right down to the letter. And when we did that, we actually found that there were trivial differences between what we had in the 1,000-year-old copies to the originals. That is profound. We can be sure that what we have is on the ball. The New Testament canon, what about that? Well, compared to the Old Testament, the New Testament took uh, a bit longer to canonise and it was much more controversial, uh, which is not hard to imagine. Again, uh, when you have Jesus appearing in the flesh and you have the gospel going out to more than just the Jews, it's going to cause a bit of a stir. Uh, and the gospel going out to the Gentiles was um, the great mystery of the gospel itself. It's profound what that actually meant and entails if you actually go through you know Romans 9 to 11 and you look at Ephesians chapter 2 about what this new man is the mystery of the gospel that which was hidden in times past it's a good study to do on your own so how did it all come together well the formation of the New Testament canon uh, itself began in the first century you see that there are authors confirming uh, the other authors within the New Testament itself so you have you know Paul's writings were seen as authoritative uh, we have various letters already being circulated amongst the churches, so they were already accepted. That was that third dot of criteria that we talked about. After the first century, which is after basically the period of Acts, um, there between AD 130 to 202, we see the early church fathers mentioning the books by name, men like Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Arrhenius, Hippolytus, all of these guys are mentioning the books in the New Testament. The first canon of the New Testament that, that was ever put out there officially as the standard was called the Muratorian Canon, and it was compiled in about AD 170. That's a long time before old Constantine. And it was only missing three books, Hebrews, James, and 3 John. But by AD 367, we had Athanasius stand up and declare, recognise what he saw as canon and publish it officially in the first sense and then we had in AD 393 the Council of Hippo and a little later on 397 at Carthage. All 27 of the New Testament books were recognised and declared and published officially by the church as the canon of scripture. Why did it take so long? Again remember history and you cannot do this bibliology stuff without knowing history because that is what it is. Christianity was only legalised in 313 AD prior to that time you were butchered for believing in this text now we can start to see and understand why it took a little bit of time not to mention that they didn't have emails or you know things just took longer back then so as time progresses so did legend and that's why you have these um pseudopigrapha they're called these other legendary uh books about jesus and things like that the infancy narrative of gospel uh, the instant infancy narrative of thomas and things like that um they started to develop and they all came a lot later a lot more uh, time had elapsed between the original gospels that we have and what they have to say so that's canonicity if we just regroup real quick then week one what have we looked at the bible was divine revelation given through divine inspiration from God to man. It is Theonoustos, God-breathed. Week two, last week, the original God-breathed word was faithfully preserved, transmitted down to this day, textual history from the originals. We have variations, but they are inconsequential to Christian doctrine or theology. Week three, so far, we have 66 books that are canon, only canon relative to everything else we have. This is the revealed word. The Bible. Revealed, inspired, 
transmitted, translated canon. The canon is closed. The canon is closed. Jesus promised it. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all things that I said to you. Not just some, not just part, all things. So if this isn't it, he is a liar. He, the Spirit of truth, will guide you in all truth, not some, not part, all truth. And he will tell you things to come. You can see how this is a theological thing. It's not just history. Canonization is actually theological. The apostles confirmed it in their writings. The church recognised it. We've just talked about that. God completes what he begins. God preserves what he produces. And a second Peter 1.3 declares, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and virtue. There is nothing else. There is nothing else. This is it. The Bible is a coherent consistent, uniform, progressive revelation from Genesis to Revelation. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. There is nothing else to a story than that. This is it. This is complete. Any new discoveries we may dig up from a tall 13th or 14th cave in the Dead Sea Scrolls will either conform to what we have or they won't. That's it. It's either going to align with what we have to say or it won't. And to talk of an open canon is literally a contradiction in terms. It's, to talk, it's, it's like talking about um, an open one-ended ruler, metre ruler. You don't add 10 centimetres to the end of a, a metre ruler and call it a metre ruler anymore. You don't add more to the end of canon and call it canon. This is it. It has a beginning with Genesis, a climactic middle with Jesus at the summit of Calvary, and it has an end in glory in the final pages of Revelation and John's apocalypse. We have the complete charter of human history right here. The canon is closed, and the best way to see this, by the way, is to compare the end of the Old Testament with the end of the New Testament. The end of the Old Testament, it is open. You are left waiting for the King of Israel to come. You are left waiting for God to fulfill his covenantal promises and blessings to the people of Israel. You are left in anticipation. You are left at the top of the story, at the top of the roller coaster, near, ready to come down. You're waiting for something to happen, and then it stops. And we have a 400-year intertestamental period gap, and you're just wondering what is going on. Then Jesus comes in the flesh. The Old Testament is left open. And the New Testament does not get more closed, slammed in your face than what we read in Revelation 22. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. That's a door in your face, slammed. By Revelation 22, we have a new heaven, we have a new earth, the old things are gone. Salvation history has run its course. It's done. How can you add to that? It's been said that Revelation is the book uh, of prophecy. It's like Grand Central Station. All the trains come in. Every prophecy is tied off. Everything that was launched in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, all of those things, Genesis 3.15, the salvific promise to Adam and Eve, all of these things are launched in the Old Testament and you're waiting for them to come home. Where, oh, nope, not by the end of Malachi. And then you see them all being tied off there in Revelation. Of course, a lot of them are tied off in the cross of Christ. And there's still stuff going on today. So where does that leave us then? Where does that leave us? Now we're ready to talk about the doctrine of sola scriptura. And why do I say only now? Because I want you to know, folks... We don't wake up and make up stuff like the doctrine of sola scriptura. We have had three weeks now of looking at reasons for why we believe in the authority of scripture, which is really where we're going with sola scriptura. This is a reasoned faith. We don't shut our eyes to whatever's going on and just accept what the Bible says. There are reasons for why we believe what we believe. Let's get into it. Sola scriptura. The doctrine of sola scriptura, this was really the focus and the foci, if you will, the hinge upon which the entire reformation of the 16th century turned. The split between Christendom, 
between Protestants and Catholics. We aren't a Catholic church here today. We're in a Catholic building, uh, and we've got our confessional stuffed with chocolate biscuits and coffee. <laughs> and I like that. We are not a Catholic church for, for very good reasons, based on the dogma of the Catholic church. We are a Protestant church. Why? Well, it all started with this thing called the Reformation in the 16th century. Martin Luther, the former Catholic monk himself. By the way, Catholic just means universal. So prior to this time, everyone was a Catholic in terms of the church. It was only after the Protestant Reformation that Catholic became synonymous with specifically Catholicism like we know it today. So just be aware of that. In 1517, this guy called Martin Luther... um, nailed his 95 theses, the disputations against the Holy Roman Catholic Church to that door of all saints in uh, Wittenberg, Wittenberg, Germany, challenging the authority, the papal authority of the church, the standing monolithic papal authority of that day and age. There was no church separation of church and state. The church was the state back then, dark ages. You know, it was all together. He went and challenged that, took it head on as a monk from inside their own ranks, nailed it to the door, And if you've watched the movie or you've read the books, you know what he said famously on trial before the council or the Diet of Worms, they were called. Diet just means assembly. Worms happen to be the place they are located. Um, So he stood there before these Roman Catholic priests and bishops and he said this, Unless I shall be convinced by proofs from Scripture or by evident reason, for I believe in neither popes nor in councils since they have frequently erred and contradicted themselves, I cannot choose but adhere to the word of God which has possession of my conscience, nor can I possibly, nor will I even make any recantation since it is neither safe nor honest to act contrary to conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Amen. 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 The 16th century Reformation was a clarion call for the church to reform under the authority of Scripture. Inerrancy, infallibility, authority, supremacy, sufficiency, scripture, scripture alone. Not some guy in robes. Scripture, scripture alone. Not scripture and, like the Roman church had been saying, scripture and teaching, scripture and church authority, scripture and church tradition, scripture and church hierarchy, scripture and papal authorities, the Pope, scripture and creeds and councils. Not like the Anabaptist or the Libertarians of that day were saying, scripture and dreams, scripture and revelations and visions, scripture and the latest hearing from God. The Protestant reformers stood up and said, no, no, no. It is scripture and scripture alone. Sola scriptura, the Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church, period. And the key word, the key word is infallible. Infallibility of scripture, it means that the Bible is unable to make mistakes. The Bible is unable to make mistakes. Only the word of God is unable to error. So Sola Scriptura does not deny church authorities. Sola Scriptura uh, does not deny that we have pastors and evangelists and teachers. The church itself is called the pillar of truth. But the church and church authorities are not infallible. They are not unable to make mistakes. We are fallible. I've proven that time and again from this pulpit, as Terry has as well. And Mick and Eugene and others who have stepped up here. Likewise, Sola Scriptura does not deny traditions. We like to sing songs when we gather together. We've done that already today. But even though they're true songs, they are subordinate to the truth of Scripture. It does not deny creeds or councils. We love the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. But we do not see that as infallible because, again, that is subordinate to Scripture. And Sola Scriptura does not deny that God does speak today, occasionally, in certain places, certain times, in his own way, in his own time, through dreams, through revelations, through visions, through callings, through inklings, through senses. But all of those come under the authority, the governing authority of Scripture. Sola Scriptura does not reject legitimate authorities. It just puts everything in its proper place underneath the word of God. God, because we have a prophetic word made more sure, P, 
Peter says, more sure than your dreams, more sure than your callings to leave your wife because she's not up to your standard. We have a prophetic word made more sure so you can go to that and you can go, well, that is totally wrong. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Folks, if you ever sit under the teaching of somebody that says God's word is on the same level as dreams, as the latest apostle, as a guy's teaching, as a latest revelation, run. Get out of there. That is false teaching. It is dangerous. And if you get online and you want to read about the latest um, corruption within a church, I guarantee you they do not teach Sola Scriptura. I'm not saying everyone who teaches Sola Scriptura is perfect. Again, that would defeat the point of what I'm saying. But a lot of these controversies today coming out of churches are coming out of churches where the man stands up and says, I have received this from the Lord. We have a cult in the middle of just northwest of Toowoomba in Queensland where this A.J. Miller claims to be Jesus. Ripped families apart. People have come here. He's got a 200-acre property there and he's married to Mary Magdalene. He's reincarnated and he's got his whole thing going on there. That's a very small example and a very extreme example. That is the end road, the logical end road of people who stand up and say they are above or at least on equal footing with the word of God. That's why we reject papal authority, the infallible testimony of the Pope. Yes, in defense of Catholicism, they say it must conform with the words of God, but it's, it's not scriptural. The new apostolic reformation today, men who say that they are the end times apostles coming back, it's not biblical. You run a very dangerous church when you start sectioning it vertically. We have a functional distinction here with the senior pastor and elders and things like that, but you only ever separate the church horizontally. There is one high priest, there is one mediator between God and man and then Jesus Christ. We are all at the foot of the cross in this thing called sin. Only the word of God is theonoustos. It is the only living word. But wait, David... <laughs> Um, you know, our friend Paul, he writes in Ephesians, uh, God's household has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So this whole building is fitted together. It's grown into this holy temple of the Lord upon that basis. I mean, that's what the Bible says, David, isn't it? So isn't it all built on the, you know, the apostles and this stuff? Yeah, but where did you read that? You read that in Ephesians. You read that in the word of God. The Bible and the Bible alone is infallible. Of course, that is not to say there isn't truth outside of the Bible. Again, go to your doctor when you're sick. Go get professional counselling when you need it. Go get financial advice. Go study science, not in the Bible, but at university. It's not what sola scripture is. It says scripture and scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. It doesn't mean you can't go study biology at university. But when you study your biology you think about whether or not it actually conforms to what you read in Scripture. That leads us now then into the second point, the inerrancy of Scripture. If sola scriptura is true, if the Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church, then it follows that it is inerrant. What is inerrancy? Properly defined, the doctrine of inerrancy, and here's where it's going to get fun and interesting and controversial, the doctrine of inerrancy means that the original manuscripts of the Bible are without error. Notice what that isn't then. It is not our copies today. We talked about some variations last week. But again, what were those variations and how much of the reconstruction do we have? We have in excess of 99%. So when we say error, we mean whether or not John was spelt with one N or two Ns. And this is an important difference, by the way. Uh, between inerrancy and infallibility. Infallibility means it cannot err. Inerrancy means it does not err. You can have something that's inerrant, but it's not infallible. You can have a phone book that has no errors. That doesn't mean that it could not error. The Bible is both. It not only cannot error, but it does not error. In the original manuscripts and what we've seen today in the copies of what we have, it does not error in 99% plus of everything that means anything to us as Christians. 
Make sense? This is the doctrine of inerrancy. What is the logic? One of my professors, Norm Geiser, he is a modern-day hero of inerrancy. Um, and this is very much now, we're within Christendom, we're within Christianity now having this debate uh, with respect to inerrancy. What is the inerrancy? What is the logic? The logic is quite simple. Premise one, God cannot err. Premise two, the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, if those two premises hold true, logically it is valid to conclude the Bible cannot err. God cannot err. The Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. If premise one and premise two hold true, you must, in the name of logic, confirm premise three. So do you see the importance of inerrancy here? We have just connected God and his character and his nature with the word of God. And that's because what is scripture? It is God-breathed. You cannot separate the man's breath from the man. Where am I going with this? We don't want to, we don't want to toy as though we, we can pick and choose what we want to believe from scripture. That's where we're tracking with this. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Thy word is truth. It doesn't contain truth. It is truth. And what is truth? Well, he also said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot separate the triune God as revealed in the glory of Jesus Christ, wrapped in human flesh, from the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He made all things, and by him and through him all things were made. He up holds all things by the power of his word you've got to be very careful if you want to start messing with this text because what are you saying about god so you've got two choices the way i see it either you reject that god cannot err or you reject that the bible that we have is the word of god they're your two options if you take the first option you're left with a god who isn't perfect and is unable to save and if you take the second option you're left without a word about a god who is perfect to save either way you're stuffed Now, to be clear, you do not need to believe in the doctrine of inerrancy to be a Christian. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not on our ability to understand the doctrine of inerrancy. You can be a Christian and not hold to this, but I would just protest and say you're inconsistent. It's a theological inconsistency. And hey, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. But uh, what did God say through Paul? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. What about contradictions? And this is where it's going to get fun. This raises a lot of questions. If we're going to say that this text is inerrant, are we really wanting to say that there are no contradictions at all? Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, how can you believe in the Bible? It's just full of contradictions. I was watching a show this week, a talk show in the States, and that was exactly what was coming out. How do you respond to that? Well, whenever that's said to me, um, trust me, I've learned all these lessons the hard way, but whenever that's said to me, I just, this is my first line every time, name one. Because I don't believe it contains contradictions, so let's put something on the table. Surprisingly, a lot of the time, that's not even in the Bible. I don't mean that, you know, with, it's just surprising that, that a lot of the time contradictions come from things that don't even exist. But anyways... Get them to put on the table and then you, then you have a chat about it. And you can't answer them all the time on the spot, but you say, that is a really good question and I'm going to get home and I'm going to look that up. Whenever somebody says that to you, just ask them to name them. I had a mate who uh, two years ago went through this online with me. Um, he used to be one of my old youth group leaders. Um, and we went back and forth for, we're still going back and forth two and a half years later on various things. Um, and he had a whole lineup of contradictions. And I said, these are awesome. Went away, I studied my guts off, came back, handed it back to him. It was like 30 A4 pages. And um, we went through them one by one. Um, and he said at the end, interestingly, you know, I can't fault what you've said. I just don't think when you approach the scripture with neutrality that that would be the, the most um, obvious explanation. But I'm like, approach it with neutrality. What is neutrality to you? Nobody is neutral. Everyone has a disposition towards God. The question is, is it for or against? But anyway, we were going through things like, you know, the book of Daniel, contradictions like Daniel 1.1, which says Nebuchadnezzar uh, became king in the third year of Jehoiakim, when Jeremiah 25.1 says it was actually the fourth 
year. I mean, how can you, three and four are mutually exclusive. That is pretty flat in your face. And so naturally people thought this was an error. That was until archaeologists unearthed artifacts which showed how Babylonians in the east had a different rendering of time to the Judeans in the west. And so when you talked about the ascension of a king in the east, it was known to be the year of the ascension, whereas back in the west it would have been like year zero. So hence the, the difference by year. It's kind of like when you go to America uh, and you walk into uh, a building. In America, you walk into the first floor and then you go up to the second floor. In Australia, you walk in on ground floor and you go up to the first floor. That will mess you up if you're not careful. But this is a conventional difference between time. And so that's not a contradiction. Again, there's, uh, having something unexplained does not mean that it's unexplainable, even if we don't have the answers yet. That should point out to us that we shouldn't be too quick to judge and too quick to throw stones. There's so many more that we could go through. I won't sideline you now, but leaving aside the so-called contradictions within the Bible, what about the contradictions between the Bible and the Word? Science. Psalm 93.1 says, The Word is established so that it cannot be moved. For a long period of time, people thought that that meant that the sun revolves around the earth. Or does the earth revolve around the sun? You know, but then Galileo comes and he smashes that theory out of the water. And so he gets put on trial and charged by the church and maybe Christians have been wrong this whole time. Is it the word of God that's wrong? Or is man's interpretation of the word? The word of God is infallible. Man's interpretation is not. That's an important disjunction. I mean, you Christians, you just update your interpretations when it suits you. We update our interpretations when we are shown to be wrong. That is what we do in the name of truth. By the way, it is a, it is a thoroughly unscientific statement to say that we only react when we get told we're wrong because that is what science is. The philosophy of science is changing theories. That's all science does is it changes its theories as it goes. It improves, it enhances. And let's take a really awkward one, Jonah. How's this for an unscientific story? Is it a whale of a tail or a tail of a whale? Here's why we need to stop laughing and uh, take this question very seriously. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40, For as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If Jonah's three-day excursion into the side of this fish was metaphor or allegory, you've got to say that about the death and resurrection of Jesus too, in the name of consistency. Let's be careful. You know, I've sat in a lecture here a couple of years back. I've talked to you guys about this before. A professor who referred to Christians as sitting at the little table of fantasy and faith. They're not adults at the table of reason like us, of rationalism and things like that. He was actually, interestingly enough, he was a professor um, from the States and he it was really, it was an evangelistic call for atheism. He's written a book called A Manual for How to Create Atheists. And he was going through steps and key processes for how to deconvert people from the faith. And one of him, one of his main tactics was to, it's called reducto ad absurdum, reduce it to the absurd, show how ridiculous some of this stuff is. And uh, he said, for example, go up and, and talk to somebody of the faith and show them or ask them, do you really believe the Bible says do you really believe the Bible when it says that? One of the examples he gave was, do you really believe when the Bible says that Jesus walked on water, that he walked on water? Do you really believe that? And the idea then is that you get them to say, well, I know it's hard. You know, have you walked on water? Have you seen anyone walk on water? Do you know the density of water and the density of a body? It sinks, etc., etc." Uh, and the idea is to knock them down on their doubt scale and then to trace up with them a couple of weeks later and see how they're tracking on their doubt scale and get them from 10 to 0. That's the goal. And all of that's to say, he's sitting there talking about how this is a good tactic, you just want to show them how absurd it is, the idea of a man walking on water. And I'm sitting there as this lamb in this den of lions, and it was not the time or, or place, but I just wanted to stand up and I wanted to, to just to yell out, yes, sir, I believe in that. I believe that Jesus walked on water, as you say. But, sir, may I ask you to stop mocking the cart of that which you clearly do not understand? And get to the horse of the real issue because I don't believe Jesus walked on water because of how physics works. I believe Jesus walked on water because of who Jesus is. And if Jesus is who he says he is, walking on water is trivial. That's the issue we need to get to here. So, sir, the real issue here is not the walking on the water. 
The real issue is who was walking on the water. I believe that was God in the flesh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who made everything, including the water on which he can walk. And if you're telling me here today that he does not exist from the adult's table of reason and rationalism, then please enlighten me, sir, and explain to me why is there something rather than nothing? Don't get wrapped around the axles of a bad question and embarrass yourself. Recognise the question for what it is. It's easy to throw stones and break windows. What are you proposing as an alternative? It's not a scientific question to ask, why is there something rather than nothing? It's a philosophical or a theological one. Science gives us the mechanics, the how, it does not give us answers to identity, the who, and it does not give us answers to purpose, why. But David, the who and the why questions are silly questions. The problem is life is lived by who's, for why's, through how's. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. The scripture cannot be broken. I'm not saying the Bible is easy to interpret. Mark Twain said it best, it's not the part of the Bible I don't understand that troubles me, it's the part of the Bible I do understand that troubles me. And like we saw last week, there are variations. We need to do our homework. But before you throw stones, what are you putting in its place? All I'm saying is, and this is the same drum we've been beating from week one, this is more about the questioner than it is about the question. Why should I believe the Bible is more about who is asking the question than the answers that will be given? This is the heart of the battle of bibliology. Is it a stone or is it flesh? This takes us to our final point, which will be brief. From canonicity to infallibility to inerrancy to authority to supremacy and sufficiency of Scripture. Friends, sola scripture is not a plaything. It's not something we just get together and pick and choose and talk about and debate about because we think we know better. It is the ultimate question of authority. All the differences that exist today between cults, between critics between Christians, theologically or otherwise, come back to what is your authority? What is your authority? Is it man or is it the word of God? The difference in our hermeneutics, the differences in our preaching, the differences in our teaching, they all come back to our doctrine of sola scriptura. What is our authority? The Bible and the Bible alone at Calvary Chapel is our authority and this is what it gives us, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, through faith alone, solus Christos, in Christ alone, all for one purpose, sola di gloria, for the glory of God alone. Sola scriptura is the very foundation of the gospel that we hold dear. Let's not mess with it. We don't shut our eyes like blind fundamentalists and claim it. We have reasons. We've got three weeks and I haven't even scratched the surface as to why we believe it. It is a reasoned position and I think it's the best, most reasonable position. And when you do your homework, this is where you end up. Let me close with two quotes. One from Augustine of Hippo. If you, don't, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe but yourself. Bam! Put that on your fridge next time you want to choose what it is you want to read in Scripture. Next time you're offended at the idea of hell. I'm not saying that I like reading about hell. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'll close with this. We all therefore have to face this ultimate and final question. Do we accept the Bible as the word of God? As the sole authority in all matters of faith and practice? Or do we not? Is the whole of my thinking governed by Scripture? Or do I come with my reason and pick and choose out of Scripture and sit in judgment upon it, putting myself in modern knowledge forward, putting that forward as the ultimate standard and authority? The issue is crystal clear. Do I accept Scripture's revelation from God? Do I trust to speculation, human error, human learning, human understanding and human reasons as the alternative? 
Or, putting it still more simply, do I pin my faith to and subject all my thinking to what I read in the Bible, or do I defer to modern knowledge, to modern learning, to what people think today, to what we know at this present time, which was not known in the past? It is inevitable that we occupy one or the other of these two positions. Where do you sit? Let's pray. And Father, we are a humbled lot here today. For we are men who have erred, we are fallible, we make mistakes and we change our minds. And yet there is a word before us today which is unmoved and unshaken from its inception thousands of years ago. Culture mocks it and says it's archaic and old. And yet it just speaks to the relevant time, to the disposition of people today in a way that is incredibly relevant because people are searching for answers to their questions in the wrong places. We're looking for modern answers to Genesis issues and yet we have a first century solution and it's here in our text. Thank you, Father, for completing what you began. Thank you, Father, for preserving what you produced. Lord, the canon of Scripture is unshaken. It is the unmoved mover, because it is your word. It and it alone is infallible. We do not determine, we discern. We do not invent, interpret. We do not make up, we minister. We do not conform your word to our culture or our conscience. We conform our conscience and seek to conform our culture to your word. And let me just let me just pray now the word of uh, our brother who's gone before us and is with you in glory now, David. Your word is a lamp for my feet. It is a light on my path. I have taken an oath and I confirm it, that I will follow your righteous laws, O Lord. I have suffered much. Preserve my life according to your word. Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. <coughs> my heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. This is your word, and to this all God's people said. Amen.